Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. At the 1920 Republican Convention, the journalist H.L. Mencken observed with great amusement and interest the behavior of Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, chair of the convention. Lodge's keynote speech was, of course, bosh, wrote Mencken, but it was bosh delivered with a certain air. Lodge got away with it because he was Lodge, because there was behind it his unescapable confidence in himself, his disarming disdain of discontent below, his unapologetic superiority. This superiority was, and is, quite real. Lodge is above the common level of his party, his country, and his race, and he knows it very well, and is not disposed toward the puerile hypocrisy of denying it. It is extraordinary, given how Mencken saw Lodge, that we are today much more likely to know who H.L. Mencken was than to recognize the name of Henry Cabot Lodge. Of a prominent seafaring family, he received one of the very first PhDs granted by Harvard, was involved in Massachusetts politics from 1880 onwards, and in 1892 was elected to the United States Senate, where he served until his death in 1924. He was one of the great political personalities of his age, alongside Theodore Roosevelt, his friend of 35 years. Together, as Lawrence Jerdom describes in his new book, The Professor and the Rough Rider, they formed an unbeatable team, Roosevelt thrusting head, Lodge offering kindly tactics and strategy, serving as Roosevelt's one-man think tank advisory group and corner and cut man. Through their friendship, though their friendship was threatened by Roosevelt's third-party run for the White House, their final years were warmed by their mutual detest for Woodrow Wilson. Lawrence Jerdom is currently an adjunct professor of history at Fairfield University and Fordham College's Lincoln Center campus. The author of Paving the Way for Reagan, The Influence of Conservative Media on U.S. Foreign Policy, he is a frequent commentator on American politics. Lawrence Jordan, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. And I <clears throat> I loved your introduction uh, with the Mencken quote, which I thought was unbelievably uh, accurate considering uh, when it was written. Don't you and- wish we could write like that? I mean, it just, uh, it all, it just sings. It's, it, it, Mencken is compulsively quotable. Yeah, he was a wonderful writer, and and the thing that I also liked about your uh, your introduction was the uh, use of the boxing uh, analogy, with uh, Lodge serving as Roosevelt's uh, cut man. Actually, uh, it was the other way around because um, Lodge actually punched a constituent in the face in 1917 <laughs> uh, as he was making his way to the Senate uh, to concur with Woodrow Wilson's declaration of. Um, of war against Germany. He was confronted by a gentleman 30 years his junior. Lodge was in his late 60s at this time, was a, was a very athletic man, was a man who always stayed in shape, who enjoyed uh, physicality. And he was confronted by this, this gentleman who had been a graduate of Harvard Law School and also a minor league baseball player. And uh, this fellow, along with a number of his, his cohorts, kind of got in Lodge's face or gotten Lodge's grill, as um, George W. George H. George W. Bush used to say, um, and and accused him of being a coward because he wasn't putting more resistance up uh, to the U.S. Uh, engaging uh, Germany. And Lodge said, "Look," he said, "I've I've made my decision. 
I'm sorry if you disagree, but I'd appreciate it if you would, you know, allow me to, to pass. And this gentleman wouldn't. He walked in up to Lodge, stuck his finger in his chest, yelled at him. Lodge pushed him back and subsequently punched him right in the face. And this fellow hit Lodge, smashing him up against the large wooden uh, doors of, of, the, of the office that he was, he was entering. And uh, they probably would have kept going if, if Lodge's uh, aides didn't jump and uh, grab this fellow and restrain him. They also beat him up pretty badly too. Um, Theodore Roosevelt thought this was terrific as the of, media of the time. They actually, I think it was in the, I'm going to say, I believe it was either the Boston Globe or the Boston Herald that had a picture of Lodge in one of those kind of boxing signs where in this corner we have Henry Cabot Lodge and in this corner we have, I think his name was Alexander Bamward. I'm, I'm, probably, I'm probably mispronouncing it. It sounds like a Harvard graduate. But um <laughs> Roosevelt loved it, um, and he had uh, he, he wrote Lodge soon after this, asking him, saying, you know, if you had done this when I was considering you being nominated for president of the liberal wing of the Republican Party the year before in 1916, you would have gotten the nomination hands down. <laughs> and of course, Lodge loved the fact when there was a little item about the incident in the Boston Globe that said, that he had been a pugilist back in the day, that he had taken boxing lessons, um, which I, I have no idea if that's if that's accurate. I don't see why it, why it wouldn't have been because Lodge loved sport and he was always he was a very competitive man. So, so this is the that's a wonderful anecdote with which to begin and to juxtapose with that Mencken idea of a Nietzschean superiority. And, you know, Mencken is probably overly indebted to Nietzsche and it filters everything heavily through a Nietzschean lens. And there we have Lodge as sort of a, a New England ubermensch. Um, and the other quote he talks about, he talks about the steaming hot nature of the 1920 Chicago convention and how Lodge is the only person that does not sweat. He was there in flesh, but his soul was in some remote and esoteric cafe. Perhaps even the presence of flesh was no more than an optical delusion, a mirage due to the heat. He says, he did not sweat like the general. He did not puff. He did not fume. There's, there's the cerebral icy lodge, which insofar as we remember lodge, that's law. He's the professor. But here you're describing a guy who is, in reading the book, he's a, it's he's he's a complex character. Here is a man who is is athletic. He loves to ride on horseback. He stays in shape. He's uh, bigger than he seems in pictures. I realize, you know, um, he is he wants he wants to punch a constituent out if they get in his grill. Uh, and he is also he's a passionate man. He has a passionate marriage. Marriage there's and then in the the infidelities are passionate. Um, the all everything about him is is goes against this icy cerebral image. I think that's what makes him so interesting. Yeah, no, he As was a, a man. He was a man. I think going back to the Mencken point, and I think that's where this fire comes from. He was character was uh, or virtue, if you want to go to the old phrase founders used. Virtue was the coin of the realm with him. Uh, character was the coin of the realm with him. His name and uh, and lineage. Uh, were everything. Lodge believed that that one's uh, one's race, essentially, that was one's destiny. 
That's why he was one of the reasons he was such a so hardcore in terms of these ideas like eugenics and 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 immigration. He really believed in 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 these things. Roosevelt was much more pragmatic uh, in his views of of race, believing that one was shaped by their environment. Uh, there was always a way of, of one evolving uh, over time. Lodge didn't believe that. You were who you were. That's where you, uh, that's where you remained. And Lodge believed he naturally, based on being from one of the great families of, of the East of Massachusetts, being the Boston Brahmin, as he was re referred to, he had his destiny to be not only the leader of his state, but the leader of his nation. So I want to go through periods of their relationship, and we're going to focus mostly on Henry Cabot Lodge, as we have already, rather than uh, TR. But uh, these are sort of years in their relationship, which reveals things about both of them, but particularly Lodge. Uh, and we, you begin the book by talking about their fathers, and and we're who are remarkably alike. I should say that Lodge and, and TR are eight years apart. Mm -hmm. So Lodge is all, always almost a junior uncle, certainly a very much older brother uh, to TR, certainly sees himself in that way. And TR sometimes, I, I suspect, sees himself being put in the role of junior brother. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, but let's talk about their fathers, because their fathers are extraordinarily important to their conception of their character. Yes, yes. Um, you know, there's that famous quote, which begins many Roosevelt biographies, and I used it in the opening of my first chapter when Roosevelt said, my father was the greatest man I ever knew. Uh, and, and Lodge uh, viewed his father very much the same. He said, I'm paraphrasing now, but that his father, John Lodge, who was a very successful man in his own right, uh, owned a uh, shipping business with marvelous names of ships like, uh, like the Don Quixote and and others, and worked out of uh, a uh, accounting room on Boston Harbor, where he would send his ships abroad to get spices and other exotic uh, goods from Africa and and Asia. And and Lodge adored his father. That's where he got his great love of the sea. That's where he got his great love for nautical uh, history and naval. Uh, affairs. Lodge described his father as being the perfect company uh, for a child. Uh, John Lodge was um, very patriotic, uh, very much a man who uh, was, was rabidly against uh, slavery, uh, very much wanted to serve his nation in uh, the Civil War, was unable to do so because he had a knee injury, which he, I believe, occurred in a riding uh, accident. But nonetheless, he uh, became involved in the war effort anyway, enlisting uh, uh, others to uh, serve on the field of battle. But he really taught Lodge ideas about um, courage, about honor, about uh, uh, duty, about not living life in a kind of complacent uh, sort of way, uh, to stretch oneself, to stretch one's ability to serve the community. Very much along the lines, I would argue, even though this was years before, uh, of Theodore Roosevelt's strenuous life philosophy. This idea that just don't, uh, just don't go along because you have lots of money, uh, do something with your life that is significant, 
uh, that's of service to uh, your community uh, and yourself. And when uh, John Lodge passed away, when uh, Lodge, uh, the young uh, Cabot, was an adolescent, it's something that he never got over. He said, in fact, that he was he. There was a gap all through his life uh, that n was never filled uh, when his father passed away. So, at, he, yeah, he does not follow his father in commerce or at the the sea. Is he? How many? Or is he the? How, of how many children are there in the in the lodge family? Well, there is actually there is there is uh, there is Cabot, uh, and then he has an older sister, a good deal mm -hmm. older actually, who he really isn't close to. There's a, a large age gap and she's off and away and married and living her own life when he's still a, a relatively young man. And so he's left to the, uh, the doting supervision of his mother, Anna, who very much is uh, very much is along the lines I would, I would kind of compare her to the, to, uh, the woman, the, the mother who raised Franklin Roosevelt very much someone who saw her son as the center of her world, mm -hmm. uh, filled him with complete and utter confidence, mm -hmm. uh, really imbued him with the idea that he was something special, that he had a destiny uh, to fulfill. And Douglas, she was going to do Douglas everything. MacArthur's mother as well. You yeah. Know, that it, yeah. You are a greater man than your father. That's yeah. the sort of, that, yeah. that's the special kind of mother that, that does that. Yeah. And 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 uh and she he adored her. He wrote her when he went into politics every single day, uh, for I don't know how many years, uh, wrote her just everything that was going on uh in his life, who he was meeting. Who, what was going on? She kept everything, every news clip, every photograph. Uh, she adored, adored him. Uh, she loaned him money uh, when he needed it, when he needed to finish his uh, home, his townhouse in Washington. Uh, she loaned him $50,000, which was the equivalent uh, today of, of, of however many millions. I don't, I don't know, but uh, she was an enormously wealthy woman. Uh, she controlled all the money uh, that Lodge had, except for his congressional and senatorial stipend and the money he made uh, from his writing. And he actually was an early stockholder of General Electric. So he received dividends uh, from that. But any significant funds, uh, he had to ask her for them. And she lived for a long time. She did. She lived until, I believe she lived until, for, for then, anyway, she lived until, I guess, her late 70s or early 80s, but she was quite young when, when she had him. I think she, uh, she lived until the, uh, uh, I'm going to say the, uh, certainly when TR was, was president, I believe mm -hmm. that was her. her. It's interesting because uh, both TR and Lodge, they so uh, attribute their character to their fathers, and yet their mothers... They, their mothers get sh a short stick in there in then, uh, but uh, TR's mother is also very influential, if for nothing else than because of her southern origins, uh, and uh, the fact that his uncle, I think it's his uncle, is in Liverpool trying to get uh, Confederate raiders uh, for the Confederate Navy, um, and so that, but um, yet their fathers are both passionate Union men. Mm -hmm. I mean, Union Republicans, yes. uh, and and and. I, I think perhaps uh, maybe Theodore Roosevelt uh, Sr. Is, is a little less of an abolitionist than Lodge Sr., but, um, but certainly they, they, they have their own, 
their fathers are certainly both on the radical uh, union men verging towards radical Republicans and, and their and their sons inherit that from them as well. Yes, the Civil War was a a, a really formative uh, moment in the lives of both T.R. And, uh, and, and Henry Cabot Lodge. Of course, they were far too young to uh, uh, experience it in terms of, of going to battle. But Lodge, who was several, as you said earlier, eight years older than seven and a half or so years older than T.R., remembered the experience very well. And, and in his uh, book where he describes his early life, he said the war changed everything. He said it was something that Lodge never uh, forgot. Uh, he, I think, throughout the rest of his life and certainly during his political career, he had a real sense of disdain for uh, the old uh, Confederacy and the views that existed within uh, the Confederacy. And granted, both men's views on uh, race were... Uh, to say the least, uh, narrow and 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 uh, and and foolish, if you really want to look at it that way. But both men did believe that African Americans should be citizens of the country. Uh, they believed in voting rights. Uh, there was the issue when Booker T. Washington was invited by President Roosevelt to the White House, and the and the utter uh, disdain uh, the president received from the Southern press and Southern politicians. And Lodge stood with him shoulder to shoulder, thinking, yes, well, here we go again. You know, these people just can't get anything right. You know, it's yet again another, another uh, uh, horrible stain on, on, on the country. And, and Lodge actually really, uh, at one point, I think it was in the 19 uh, TR's uh, Second, the second convention, or or the or Taft's convention, where 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 Lodge tried to get a measure uh, about uh, enhancing African American voting rights, uh, something that he would have liked to have done. Too much resistance. He writes a letter to TR and says, "You know what? It's shameful, but we just can't get it done." Um, so. They were pretty concerned about uh, about African American voting rights. Now, with Lodge, the one thing I think, which I loved and I always thought was great, he was always scheming politically. You know, everything was political with Lodge. So you can say, oh, Henry Cabot Lodge was far ahead in terms of his views on race. No, it was all about enhancing the power of the Republican Party. The idea of breaking the Solid South having more African-American Republican voting rights certainly would give power uh, to the GOP. And that's what Lodge really wanted. I don't think this was any, uh, uh, we could call it uh, idealistic uh, strain of, of, uh, of empathy or sympathy to, to improve the lives of, of African-Americans. Let's talk about Harvard. Uh, Lodge, uh, as you, you say, how Lodge, I mean, Harvard, meant a great deal to TR. Uh, it seems emotionally Lodge could have cared less, but then he came back again a second time. So we have to explain the importance of Harvard uh, for both of them. Yeah, Harvard was an interesting place then, completely different from what it is today, much smaller uh, than, than it is certainly today, and, and, and not as demanding academically. 
uh, as it is today. It was it was very much, and and I forgive forgive for uh, forgive me for those of you listening who attended uh, Harvard. My own wife attended Harvard. My father-in-law attended Harvard. So I'm sure they'll listen to this. But so, and they know I've said this before. But uh, Harvard was very much a finishing school. It was very much not a place where you know academic rigor uh, was uh, was was key. Uh, and and Lodge admitted that he, you know, really blew a lot of opportunities while he was there. He spent too much time uh, at Porcellian, the most elite uh, club on campus, too much time going to plays at the Hasty Pudding Club, too much time riding or having a good time. He just really didn't apply himself, and he admits this. Uh, Roosevelt was the same. He said, you know, I, I enjoyed my time at Harvard, but in retrospect, it really didn't do a whole lot for me in terms of uh, dealing uh, with the world. Uh, Lodge was influenced to do a degree uh, in history by Henry Adams, uh, a giant within himself who we could probably spend the entire podcast just talking about. Um, Lodge... Uh, had taken a class with uh, with Henry Adams at, at Harvard. Uh, he and Henry Adams became his mentor. And when Lodge, after his honeymoon with his wife, Nanny, he corresponded with Adams and said, well, uh, what should I do? What path should I take? And Henry Adams said, well, uh, why don't you consider being a writer and an academic? And if that's the case, you should get a couple of advanced degrees. And Lodge did that. He got an advanced degree uh, in law, and he got uh, one of the first PhDs uh, from Harvard uh, in, uh, in American history. Uh, and he wrote history for really his whole life in, in and out of, of, of politics. He very much was the professor or the professor uh, in politics, as, as Theodore Roosevelt called him, a man who had one foot in the academic world and another foot in the uh, political world. Not to get too deep in the histori historiography or the history of teaching American history weeds here, but it's fascinating to see that his, his dissertation was on Anglo-Saxon law because at the very same time, 1876, Johns Hopkins is being formed. The history department at Johns Hopkins is obsessed with Anglo-Saxon law and Anglo-Saxon institutions. And Woodrow Wilson, who's getting his PhD in history and politics or wherever the hell it was, uh, he's also, even though he'll do stuff, he's doing stuff on Anglo, everyone's doing Anglo-Saxon stuff. It fits in with the eugenics, it fits in with the race, it also fits in with this, uh, you know, it fits in, it, it's, it presages also a progressivism, I think, to some degree. That's a really interesting context. I did not know, I did not know that about uh, the, the strong interest in that, in that area. Uh, Lodge certainly also, I believe, talked taught courses on on this. He was not the most inspiring of professors. I think at one point in maybe one of his first classes, he had something like 16 students that went down to something like four or five. <laughs> so I don't know how well he would do it today's academic environment. It helps, it helps that there are no student evaluations. <laughs> no, no assistant dean for, you know, exactly. uh, Record keeping and you know minding your and uh, minding your own business. Uh, so, so 1876, he gets his PhD. In 1880, he is elected to the Massachusetts Legislature. 1880 is when T.R. is elected to the New York Legislature. Why do these two Brahmins? Why do they turn to politics? 
Well, I think as as I said, I think for Lodge, uh, he there were a couple of things. I think one going back to what I said. He had great uh, admiration for his, uh, the ancestral portion of his family. George Cabot, uh, a direct relation, had been the second senator uh, from Massachusetts, had been very friendly with Alexander Hamilton. Um, Lodge was surrounded uh, by history uh, growing up in, in Boston. Um, many prominent historians would come visit uh, his family, they would have dinner together, and I think Lodge found that very interesting. Uh, but on the political side, right around the time Lodge was in his formative period in the late in the 1880s, let's say, uh, and even before, the nation had begun to change. Uh, you know, we had that post-Civil War, the Gilded Age was in full swing. We had massive industrial change uh, where you had a series of individuals come in, Carnegie's, Rockefeller's, etc., who really changed society. And certainly one can argue they changed them for the good. But from Lodge's perspective, things were changing very, very quickly. Uh, markets were changing, business was changing, uh, men he had known who had these very simple uh, businesses or practices found themselves unable to keep up with this massive industrial shift and they were being put out of business. Um, and uh, so there was, then that frustrated him and he thought, you know, what's going on here? How can I, uh, what, wh what can we do to slow things down? There was all this excess wealth that was uh, occurring in the country. You had people like uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt building these enormously plush uh, estates in New York and Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, money seemed to essentially uh, give one the excuse to do whatever they wanted. Uh, there were many uh, scandals, alcoholism, uh, all of this sort of lascivious behavior was going on. Uh, and, and Lodge just, it, he just, it, it upset him. He just did not understand uh, what was going on uh, with the country that he had, he had known. It seemed like virtue, integrity, honesty was all going out the window. And, and he decided that he would go into politics to try to slow down uh, this industrial process, to try to perhaps figure out a way to restrain these malefactors of great wealth, not extremely, but in a way that might uh, give those contemporaries who had retreated uh, around him in, in Massachusetts the opportunity to regain their footing. And that was, was something that he was very concerned with and why he decided to go into politics. So if he, if he becomes a certain type of progressive, which arguably he does, um, he's a sort of Burkean progressive. Yes. He, he, wants, he wants to retard rapid progress, but have slow evolutionary progress. And there's also, in addition to that, just a sort of ancient regime, his disgust with the nouveau riche and, and the new ways of doing things. I mean, we've he's he's proud of his bloodline and he wants to preserve it. And yes, people yes. and the ability of people like him. 
Yes, he, he, I think Burkean is the perfect phrase to describe the kind of conservatism Lodge uh, emanated. He, he, want, he, he was a historian, right? Mm-hmm. He understood change occurred over time. There was no way to stop it. It was going to happen. But his attitude was he wanted to try to put some mechanisms in that contained that change a little bit, that restrained it, that allowed it to progressively move slowly forward. That was something that he wanted. And to your point of his frustration with where he said at one point, it seemed that people believed they could do anything if they had money. Lodge uh, spent most of his time in Nahant, which was the small community on the eastern shore of Massachusetts, uh, very much completely contrary to the opulence of of Newport or Palm Beach or any of these other large uh, uh, communities, uh, summer communities that were catering to the nouveau riches, as as you say, Lodge lived in a very rustic uh, area. He had the sea, he had his home, which was a very, it was a beautiful estate uh, known as East Point. And there he could ride, play tennis, he could think, he could write. Uh, he didn't have to deal with um, with these crazy uh, robber barons giving big parties and all of these other kind of uh, kind of shady characters that they surrounded themselves with. So their friendship between T.R. and Lodge dates to 1884. Is that right? Is mm-hmm. that they become fellow combatants at the Republican Convention in 1884? Yes, I think that's correct. They met one another probably when. Lodge would occasionally come and visit the Porcellian Club. Uh, Lodge, uh, Roosevelt's uh, uh, first wife uh, was a cousin of Lodge, if if so distant, distant cousin. And I'm sure I think they did meet at a reception uh, in Boston, uh, either around the time they got married or or soon after that. But yes, it was really the the tumultuous politics of the 1884 convention uh, that brought them together. And and the tumultuous politics of that convention seem very foreign to us and far away from us. The concerns are very different. But reading it, it's, it's seemed clear to me that in many ways their perspectives on that will last into the 1900s. Um, sort of the sort of the issues they see as being crucial to the to crucial 20 years later as well. So could you explain how they allied and uh, against what? Yeah, again, you know, this kind of goes back to what I said before about Lodge's unhappiness with society. You know, uh, the Gilded Age was notoriously uh, corrupt uh, from a political uh, point of view. The Republican Party considered itself or had positioned itself as a party of integrity. This was the party of of Lincoln. Uh, this was the 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 anti slavery party. However, by the time you get to the eighteen eighties, uh, the Republican Party had chosen to sur- uh, surround itself around by eighteen eighty four with a gentleman by the name of James Blaine, who uh, was an extremely celebrated one of the great political characters of of his age, a great orator, which uh, who a man who rehearsed every little word, every little movement, every little phrase 
uh, he used in, in his great uh, speech making. But, but Blaine was a flawed character. He had been involved in the immobiliare uh, railroad scandal, which involved payoffs and kickbacks that many in Congress uh, received from the railroad barons. And so Blaine was tarred uh, with this scandal when he uh, was the front runner for the Republican nomination in 1884. Lodge and Roosevelt were very unhappy with James Blaine. They did not want him to get the nomination and they were determined to do anything they could uh, to prevent this man from becoming the Republican standard bearer. And so they really attempted what one might call a hostile coup to topple Blaine uh, from uh, this precipice. And they attempted to do that uh, by finding, trying to find anybody else uh, who could replace uh, Blaine. They, they were not successful at this. The most successful uh, thing they were able to do was remove Blaine's choice uh, as the gentleman, uh, the former governor of Arkansas, who was a uh, who was a Blaine choice as chairman of the convention. They replaced him with a gentleman by the name of John Roy Lynch, who was an African American congressman from Mississippi. And this was uh, Lodge and Roosevelt's great moment in the in the Sun. They both got up and gave tremendous uh, speeches in favor of Lynch. Roosevelt got into it with a delegate uh, from New Jersey who told uh, TR to shut his mouth. And I'm sure Roosevelt, if the man had been within arm's reach, Roosevelt would have would have taken a swing at him, chances are, because Roosevelt was quite livid, not only because of, of the opposition uh, to this incredibly uh, eloquent uh, congressman from Mississippi, but the fact that both he and Lodge were enormously frustrated that they could not move the delegates away from uh, James Blaine. And after that convention, uh, when both men, particularly Lodge, were ostracized by their respective communities, because in the end, what happened was Lodge and Roosevelt both voted for James Blaine. Lodge was head of the Massachusetts delegation at the time. He was committed uh, by his office to vote for the party nominee, whether he wanted to or not. Of course, Lodge also wanted was running for Congress at the time. He, being the great pragmatist that, that he was, was unwilling to rock the boat. So uh, he took his uh, licks, ended up losing that first run for Congress anyway, was ostracized by all of the liberal Republicans uh, up on Beacon Hill, uh, and essentially had to go lick his wounds and wait for another uh, opportunity. Roosevelt supported Blaine uh, as well, was much perhaps much more uncomfortable in doing that uh, than Lodge was and subsequently spirited himself off to uh, the Dakota territory where he had his ranch uh, and wondered if he wanted to remain in politics at all. But during that period, the two men had really secured a strong friendship with one another and they began writing these tremendous lengthy pieces of correspondence where they really unburden themselves to one another about, well, what should we do? Both men, uh, when, when Lodge lost that race, 
uh, for Congress. Roosevelt wrote him letters, don't worry, you'll be back. You are the best the Republicans have. Uh, I know you'll be, you'll be coming back. Um, and and he, he even campaigned uh, for Lodge in that losing effort. Uh, in in 1884, and the two really became uh, inseparable. Not only uh, because Lodge and Roosevelt uh, had so much in common between sports, living well, uh, interest in politics, literature, world affairs, but Lodge's wife, uh, Nanny Anna Cabot Dave Mills Davis Lodge, was such an extraordinary woman uh, that Roosevelt was always thrilled to be. Uh, with Cabot and and have the opportunity to exchange uh, views with with Nanny, who he he adored as did did everyone. Hmm. Um, 1898. There's um, a revolution in Republican foreign policy. Certainly, uh, it's hard to overemphasize how since uh, for most of the 19th century the Democrats were the imperialists mostly because of slave power. Um, they wanted to expand to Cuba, to Mexico, to take over places, to extend slavery. Republicans in their genesis are against that sort of thing because Democrats are for it. And then suddenly in 1898, war with Spain. And uh, Lodge and Roosevelt uh, in very different, in uh, Lodge as Senator, Roosevelt as Assistant Secretary of Navy are spearheading the transition just there are many internal oppositions, like Thomas Reed, the uh, Speaker of the House, um, but they are, are are rolling the Republicans towards being a more activist, imperialist, colonial foreign policy. Could you could you discuss that sort of that alliance in 1898? How the the Lodge Roosevelt alliance changed American history there? Yes. Well, Lodge believed, had always believed, or I should I certainly believe he had always believed, but but. When Alfred Thayer Mahan wrote his book on uh, the importance of, 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 of the Navy in world history, Lodge really did believe this is, this is the moment. This is the moment when the United States really needs to seize uh, the opportunity uh, to become a great nation. Uh, Lodge was always uh, concerned about the influence and power of Europe. He was always concerned that the United States, in a way, uh, could potentially be, uh, was weak, uh, could potentially be uh, undermined or attacked by the uh, more powerful uh, global powers. Remember, England, of course, you know, the sun never sets on the British Empire, had this extraordinary navy, had colonies all over the world, Spain, all these other great uh, European powers. And, and Lodge believed we need to have those opportunities. We need to have a, uh, a hand in the affairs in the Pacific uh, we need to have the opportunity uh, to achieve uh, economic uh, greatness. And he believed that, that being out in the Pacific, in, in potentially uh, seizing uh, the Philippines and seizing Cuba or other, or other parts of uh, key positions within uh, the Pacific theater, uh, would give the United States that opportunity to begin uh, to rise as a great international power. Uh, Roosevelt believed the same thing. They both uh, read Mahan's book. As I write, Lodge may have read it, 
Roosevelt devoured it. Um, Roosevelt loved naval history. He was very much along the lines of, of Lodge. He had written his great uh, naval history of, of the War of, of 1812 years earlier. He knew Mahan. He had gone and talked at the, at the Naval War College. And, and he believed, like Lodge, that the United States had a great destiny. Uh, that he really did believe that this idea that George Washington had talked about in his farewell address, this idea of Western expansion. By the time uh, 1898 arrives, the West is closed. There's no further, uh, no, no, way, no further the, uh, the United States can go in terms of, of moving westward, in terms of colonizing. The only thing that remained was the wider world. And that's what Lodge and Roosevelt wanted to do. So in 1901, suddenly, I mean, and, and TR's career can be measured in, in like matters of months, I think from 1896 through 1901, because he goes from assistant secretary of Navy, then he's off colonel in the U.S. volunteers, and then he's back, war's over, he's back. And now he's running for governor of New York. Now he's governor of New York. Now he's dictating a biography of Cromwell while shaving, which I always makes makes me always feel extremely inferior. I'm sure it's not a very good biography, but the fact that it exists right. is in, infuriating to me. And then, uh, and then suddenly he's nominated to be vice president. And then McKinley is shot by an anarchist at an ex a World's Fair in Buffalo, of all places, talking about Lodge and Roosevelt had been. Yes, a Months sequence of improbable earlier. events. Um, so, uh, and now Roosevelt is, you know, what Theodore Rex, as Edmund Morris put it mm -hmm. in, in the book. Um, and at this point, Roosevelt's somewhat um, touchy about whether or not Lodge is his think tank intellectual corner man, cuts and bruises chap. Um, you've got a quote, instead of Lodge running me, I run Lodge. Yes, that was um, a quote from a, a, a journalist who, when Roosevelt becomes president, uh, he, he, and of course, as you know, Roosevelt loved the newspaper, the newspaper business, the newspaper men, you know, he loved the journalists. They followed him around. He loved, uh, he was, a, he was always great to get a, a sound bite in, you know, um, he'd probably do very well today with, with Twitter and, and the kind of the, the way news is, is, is processed today. But, um, yeah, the thing I think that, that, that I think was really interesting was how responsible Henry Cabot Lodge was in getting Roosevelt so many of these positions and positioning him uh, for the vice presidency. Lodge really did believe, to borrow a, yet another a Franklin Roosevelt phrase, that, that TR had a rendezvous with destiny, that he was this unique figure, this unique intellect, this unique personality with this incredible energy drive political acumen to become president of the United States. And I, I don't know when Lodge first started talking about it, but certainly uh, he was talking about it more than a year before uh, Roosevelt becomes uh, vice president. And so he helped Roosevelt get all of these jobs in one way or another, be it civil service commissioner, secretary of the Navy, police commissioner of New York, 
Um, he, he really, he was fully invested in the whole idea of Roosevelt being governor, even though he thought Roosevelt would be better off in the Senate, but he did whatever he could to get uh, TR up the, uh, up the slippery slope of, of American politics. And when Roosevelt finally becomes president, um, Lodges is delighted for him. Uh, it was not certainly with, with President McKinley uh, being assassinated. That was not the way uh, either man had expected uh, Roosevelt to, uh, to succeed to the presidency. But um, when Roosevelt does become president, there were always these little rumors that had been floating around where uh, Roosevelt was considered the junior partner, uh, where he was sort of the junior man, the firm of Lodge and Roosevelt. And, and I don't think, and, and it's, it's tough to know whether Roosevelt, it really bothered Roosevelt, but that quote to me really says a lot. Uh, he could have simply have have joked, you know, as he did so much with the media, saying, oh, you know, uh, I love Cabot. I'm not really concerned about uh, any of that. But there was some real uh, testiness behind that behind that quote. I think uh, Roosevelt really was his own man. And Lodge understood that. Uh, there were several times where uh, Lodge would try to push him to do various things. And, and deep down, Lodge knew because he actually had written uh, years earlier, he said, look, he said, you couldn't, you cannot pressure a man like Theodore Roosevelt to do anything that he doesn't want to do. But Lodge, um, I, I think when, when the, uh, when Roosevelt does become president, there really is a changing of the guard. Um, Roosevelt no longer looks to Lodge in that desperate way that he did uh, when he was coming up. And I think desperate is the right word because very early on in, in their correspondence, TR was always writing Lodge, I need your help. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? Can you keep your eye out for this? Can you keep your eye out for that? I'm in a terrible situation. I really need your help. Once he becomes president, that's all gone. He enjoys uh, Lodge's company. They go for walks together all the time. They go for rides in Rock Creek Park all the time. He loves having uh, the senator and nanny uh, to dinner. Uh, he loves uh, talking to Lodge about foreign policy. But in terms of relying on Lodge for uh, really detailed advice, that's no longer. Uh, Roosevelt is really is his own man, and he starts focusing on ideas and philosophies that are more progressive, far more progressive than Lodge is comfortable with. And this will take its toll uh, as we move through the Roosevelt presidency and up to that uh, historic 1912 election. So, Rose, um, I, I am curious, though, why did Lodge want Roosevelt to be president? McKinley's first vice president was Garrett Hobart, a name which I'm, I hope that, I certainly hope that listeners have never heard of before. He had been a state Senate president in New Jersey, was his claim to fame. I think I, I, I efforted at this thanks to Google. He was the, he was also president of the Passaic Water Company. And that was the back, the august background that led him to becoming vice president. If he had, hadn't died in office, uh, he probably wouldn't have been vice president again anyway. Um, vice presidents in America up to that point um, 
arguably, even to this day, it's not necessarily a guarantee in, that you're going to be pre next president. In fact, it's almost like a prophylactic against being president. So why did Lodge want TR to be vice president? Somehow he believed that if if Roosevelt was was president, uh, he would basically, you know, come off as being that good soldier for the Republican Party. Remember, Roosevelt wasn't liked terribly much by the Republican Party. He was never comfortable in the Republican Party. The party of McKinley was far more conservative from a business point of view and, and other issues than Roosevelt was comfortable with. He was always trying to get the Republicans to embrace ideas that they, they just didn't want, you know, and he would do things and, and, and say things that just pissed people off. Um, everywhere he went, he seemed to upset uh, the Republican the Republican Party. And perhaps Lodge thought, well, you know, be a good soldier for uh, four years and, and then we can get you out there. You'll have developed a, a sizable constituency. You can begin to build your constituency now because there's really nothing for you to do as vice president. And there certainly wasn't anything for Roosevelt uh, to do. He really was very much in a gilded cage. McKinley and his his advisor, Mark Hanna, who really disliked Theodore Roosevelt, uh, believed he was using the vice presidency as a stepping stone to the presidency. Of course, I mean, who doesn't do that, right? I mean, that's, you know, pretty common. Uh, really disliked Roosevelt and did everything they could to cut him off from exerting any influence or advice uh, uh, in the White House. He always said, McKinley is is very nice to me, but they just don't let me do anything. And, um, and uh, uh, Roosevelt's uh, uh, wife, Edith, had been very worried when Roosevelt was thinking about becoming vice president. Roosevelt, is, as I think many of your listeners probably know, had a, uh, had, had a depressive personality. And when he wasn't occupied or engaged uh, in uh, activity, he could be very contentious. He'd get very depressed. He could be a very difficult person to be around. Uh, and Edith was very, very worried, as was his sister, Bammy, who had an argument with Lodge uh, over the idea of the vice presidency. Uh, Lodge essentially had told his sister, that, told Bammy, who was a good friend of, of Henry Cabot Lodge, that, quote, you're out of your head. Uh, and, and, uh, and Bammy almost threw him, threw him out of her house in, in <laughs> Washington, um, because she said, you know, my brother can't do this. You can't, you can't isolate him like this, but, but the governorship had become untenable. Uh, Roosevelt was not going to be renominated and there was no other place for him to go. So, uh, Lodge thought, let's give this vice presidency a shot. And as Lodge said, very press impressively, one doesn't know what can happen over four years. And he certainly was right. So Roosevelt serves his seven years, uh, decides not to run for re-election in 1908, which I think he regarded as his greatest ever mistake, mm -hmm. um, goes off on this safari to Africa, kills all sorts of animals, um, reads lots of books, comes back, and then raises hell with William Howard Taft, who, you know, I think we can now say was actually implementing everything that TR had wanted him to implement in 1909. But his African safari had probably gotten him malaria and also changed his mind about some other things. So TR's, TR's thinking has moved along. 
Um, and so Taft can't keep up with where TR has been moving. And so TR then gives his speech in Osawatomie, Kansas, uh, which really causes a fissure with, with, with Lodge. Um, it's uh, indicative, by the way, it's Osawatomie, Kansas, famous because of John Brown, um, not probably Henry Cabot Lodge's kind of Republican. Um, that sort of that sort of symbolizes w the radicalism that TR is moving towards, which Lodge just can't where Lodge just can't follow him. Yes, and and it's ironic uh, if you think about it, because 1910 TR is happily off uh, hunting uh, white rhinoceroses and and elephants and other things. And Lodge is the one who starts to write him these letters where he more or less is, is metaphorically stalking TR at every turn, sending letters to Roosevelt, writing these desperate letters about Taft, what a disaster he is. He doesn't understand politics. He's alienated all these individuals. The country wants you back. Uh, this could be your opportunity. Lodge, everything Lodge, as I said earlier, Everything Lodge thought about involved keeping the Republican Party in power. Um, he was very, he's very much like, I think, Mitch McConnell in, in, in that way, both great parliamentarians and both men who really understood how politics worked. And, and also Lodge- at, 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 at the senatorial level too, yes. which, is, which is even more, it's even more senatorial in 1910 than it is now. Yeah. Where you've got a hundred independent, a herd of, of, well, I guess at the time it was 96 independent minds, uh, 94, all of whom want to be president. Uh, and, uh, but somehow the ability to, to master that is one of the most delicate arts in world politics, probably. Yeah. And, and, and it's so, so Lodge is really thinking constantly about the midterm elections and thinking about the next presidential. And that's all he thinks about. Yeah. And, and he believes Roosevelt needs to come back to, to keep these two uh, div divisive groups, the liberal Republicans uh, who would become the Bull Moose Republicans and, and the conservative wing of, of the party from completely splintering apart and, and allowing the Democrats to fill the void, which of course ends up happening anyway uh, in 1912. But R Lodge is enormously unhappy with, with some of these views that, that Roosevelt is coming up with. Open primaries, uh, <laughs> removing, the thing that he hated the most was the idea of removing, uh, having uh, referendums on, on justices who don't uh, come up with rulings that the public uh, the public likes. Lodge thought that was absolutely horrific. He said the number of the quality would would go so far down it wouldn't even be worth taking the the position. And and Lodge was a very much a, a strong uh, const constitutionalist. He believed in the Constitution as written, uh, and he didn't like some of these things that 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 Roosevelt was was recommending and he didn't like the fact that Roosevelt was about to wreck the Republican Party and he wrote a letter to Theodore Roosevelt that he actually put in his uh the published correspondence where he said I cannot and I'm paraphrasing again he said I cannot recall a moment where you have hurt me as 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 much as you as much as you have I clearly was completely wrong about you in terms of my 
I thought we were both on the same page. I thought we understood and believed in the same things. Clearly, we didn't. And then this incredibly prolific correspondence, which had begun in 1884, essentially stops. There may be a letter here. There may be a letter there. They see one another at various social occasions. Lodge says, I'm not going to participate in the 1912 primary because your friendship is more important to me than uh, politics. Of course, Lodge didn't uh, really follow his own advice because he did uh, shift the Massachusetts primary to William Howard Taft. I don't know uh, if Roosevelt knew about this. Um, if he did, I, I can't imagine that friendship would have continued, but you know, who knows? And, and then they finally come back together after Roosevelt is shot. Um, Lodge is very upset. He writes these very heartfelt telegrams. Uh, TR more or less forgives him. Um, Edith never really does uh, oh. forgive Henry Cabot Lodge. He, she was secretly thrilled uh, during uh, the primary uh, when uh, more people went to a Roosevelt rally than an event Lodge was, uh, was due, to, uh, due to speak at. I think she was very hurt uh, by Lodge's betrayal, and I, as well as Elihu, uh, Elihu Root's uh, betrayal uh, as well. Uh, but they eventually come back together as, as, as one over, over their mutual hatred for, for Woodrow Wilson. Who implements all of TR's ideas. And this is a, a through point to, the, to basically 1919 and, and, and Lodge's death. Um, there's been a lot of ink spilt about Lodge and isolationism and uh, it, nothing of the sort. I mean, Roosevelt and Lodge are talking about a League of Nations in like 1913, 1914. This is their, this is, they certainly, they're probably talking, actually probably talking about it way back in like 1902. Uh, or something of the of the kind. The only reason that Lodge is against it and sort of campaigns against it in the memory of his his now dead friend is because they hate Woodrow Wilson and it's his idea. And Lodge wants to win the 1920 presidential election. Yes, I think that's that's true. But also in terms of the way the league was structured, uh, Lodge. Oh, you're going to bring policy idea. into this. Uh, well, he I, hated I, the <laughs> idea that the U.S. essentially would be second fiddle. Mm. to anything. He really saw the League of Nations as subverting the greatness, the international greatness of the United States, something that both he and Roosevelt had had been passionate about and really and I, drove their... their, their, uh, their I've course. been thinking about this a lot lately. I think Lodge is probably one of the few people, he probably has the figures at his, he probably has the figures at his fingertips. He understands that since the 1890s, might have a small constabulary army. Its navy might be in the process of development, but the United States is what we would now call superpower. I mean, it's it's a foremost economic power in the world. Its population is growing and growing and growing. He might not like that in right. some ways, but it still is. Right. I mean, he knows that Europeans don't comprehend the power. He's been to Europe numerous times. He understands they do not comprehend the power of the United States. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the moments that he enjoyed, and I, I think I write about this, is he is visiting England. And this is during, right before the Spanish-American War, but he's visiting England as he did frequently 
uh, always loved getting his dosage of, of steak and kidney pie and Anglo-Saxon law. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and he was talking to some of the, uh, the pol- British politicians who were really quite enamored uh, with the United States and, and what was going on there. And Lodge says, ah, oh, how I love being an American. Um, so yeah, no, he believed in all of, all of this. And he believed in this idea of expansionism. He believed it was the United States' destiny to expand and and bring their their these these ideas uh, to the rest uh, of the world. This this sort of imperialistic uh, philosophy, you know, white it's, man's it, burden it, philosophy, it, whatever you it, want to call and it. And there's also a bit of a like a sort of imperialistic Hamiltonianism as well. There is as well. There there is there is an idea of. I get from Lodge about an imperialistic liberalism, uh, you know, widely, broadly understood. Yes, yes. I mean, his attitude was, you know, and again, it's this, it, you could call it this sort of, uh, this Brahmin superiority that he had. Where he believed, ah, yes, he said, we can, you know, uh, that marvelous phrase that Thomas Paine uses, we can make the world over, you know, and I think yeah. that's what he believed. Oh, is it, is this is the Shabbat chapter, Henry Lodge, neoconservative, or the first neoconservative. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I, it's an, I found myself thinking very much about yep. that as you were making You, can, you can't, uh, in this case, um, uh, the uh, neoconservative is not a synonym for bagel-eating warmonger. <laughs> uh, the, uh, let's uh, let's uh, tie this up. He died in 1924 um, with the probably the last Massachusetts man from Massachusetts that Henry Lodge ever expected to be president was president at the time. Uh, at the whole separate issue of the Coolidge-Lodge relationship or lack of it. Uh, and What are are some of the sources that you used for this? Because uh, as we were talking before we started recording, Lodge is a historian and he understands the importance of sources and he understands the the need to sometimes salt the sources to to, uh, confuse future biographers and historians. Yeah, it it is very interesting. when uh, at the at the end of his life, maybe he he spends, as you said, the relationship with Coolidge is you know, it's nice enough, but it's not it's not great. There certainly is some jealousy there uh, to Massachusetts men and the Republican Party, and so Lodge remains in the Senate, but he spends more time. Um, working on his writings, he's with his grandchildren, he's very close to the future senator of Massachusetts, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. Uh, He spends a great deal of time with him. And one of the ideas that he and Roosevelt had talked about was essentially publishing uh, the correspondence between the the two of them. There are about 2,500 letters. Uh, Roosevelt believed it could be one of the great uh, books uh, in in American history, and and if you think about it, uh, it, it's probably true. Except for the fact that Lodge, when he did decide to publish these letters, he he very much talked about it with Roosevelt's widow Edith Roosevelt, and Roosevelt uh, Lodge was very concerned about publishing certain letters that did not put uh, his friend in a positive light, and so he edited. 
uh, words and phrases, and he removed paragraphs from from letters. Uh, in one letter uh, that is that, that Lodge edited, uh, Roosevelt refers to Benjamin Harrison. He's angry at Harrison because during his time on the Civil Service Commission, Harrison is really not giving him the time of day. Uh, Roosevelt refers to the president as a boob, uh, as a toad, a little toad, because Harrison was a rather diminutive sort of fellow. And, and Lodge is just like, you know, this is not the kind of thing that I want to have in this collection. And so he removes letters, he edits them, and he then publishes this two-volume collection in 1924. Um, which uh, was actually used by the scholars who put together the uh, the letters of Theodore Roosevelt for whatever reason, and perhaps the the Lodge's papers were not available when they uh, when they uh, put together that collection in the 1950s. I don't I don't know, but um, Lodge did a real disservice to history, and he did a disservice to Roosevelt too. I mean, Roosevelt was a was a very open ended figure. He couldn't care less what people thought about him. He said stuff all the time that upset people. And and Roosevelt was an amateur historian. I mean, he wrote history. He loved history. And he was right. If Lodge had been transparent, had included absolutely everything in there, every single person for all time would have to use those volumes if they were to write any serious uh, biography of Theodore Roosevelt. But these letters are now very problematic, and I spent my time sitting uh, at a library, at the wonderful, our wonderful library in Darien, uh, Connecticut, going through the lot letters Lodge had prepared and the the raw uh, letters that were the art, the actual letters that, that are at the Massachusetts Historical Society, and. Um, I mean, you know, uh, other scholars have pointed this out. This is nothing new. John Garrity, back in the 50s, when he wrote his, really the definitive book on Henry Cabot Lodge, have, has talked about it. Uh, Kathleen Dalton, who wrote a wonderful uh, book on uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, talks about it. Uh, but this is really the first book where the, under the foundation of this book is based on those 2,500 letters. And therefore, this was something that I really had to talk about uh, when I was uh, completing the work. Well, I I mean, books of letters don't sell. No one wants to read them. Uh, yet one of the most treasured items on my shelf are the Lester Capen Kep, uh, uh, edited correspondence of Adams and Jefferson which is, you know, one of the great American correspondences. And it would be great to see a one volume unexpurgated uh, collection of, of, of the Lodge Roosevelt letters. Uh, as Jeff, as Adam says to Jefferson, when they renew their correspondence, it's necessary that we should explain each ourselves to each other, uh, which is what makes it such a imperishable meeting of the minds that you can listen in on. And I'm, you know that there must have been several points in their lives where there must be several nodes in their life where just to read that them explaining themselves to another would be a great benefit. Yeah, Lodge um, never wanted those letters to be seen. Uh, if he had yeah. his way, he actually told Edith that he said, "I never want these things to be seen. I don't want anybody to to really know." And and 
But now they can be, right? I mean, now they can be. Um, <clears throat> let's uh, conclude the, the vagaries of the cultural and political reputation. I mean, Lodge is not – it should be clear that Lodge is not I – mean, he is a sort of grandmaster of political dark arts, as we've said. But he's also a cultural figure. And he has a much, he has a much more interesting life than a, a modern politician. Uh, inherited wealth helps with that. Uh, but the fact is, his avocations are, he, he takes his avocations like TR does very seriously. And yet, uh, even uh, looking at this, this is the selection I had read in the beginning from the Mencken Christomathy, a selection of Mencken's favorites of his own writings. He has to explain, this is written, I, I think, in the late 30s, 40s, he has to explain who Henry Cabot Lodge was. Henry Cabot Lodge, then a senator from Massachusetts, and one of the leaders of the Republican Party, as people have already forgotten. And yet, uh, you know, there's that fantastic John Singer Sargent portrait of Lodge, which I'll have in the uh, on the, the webpage, um, which shows him as a sort of colossus, you know, shows him as a dark Italianate, which I guess he wasn't, colossus. Um, and uh, that that all that's all for, that's all quite forgotten within years. It's it's very very humbling to realize. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I I I I I don't know, but I I always thought that people know Henry Cabot Lodge because he is briefly mentioned in high school as the man who is responsible for destroying. Uh, Woodrow Wilson's dream of the League yeah. of Nations, Give, giving Woodrow Wilson a stroke. Which, right. you know, he probably would have been pleased with, by the way. If he could have. Well, he tried to work with Wilson after he came he did. back. He and, did. And it just didn't, it just didn't work. He, I mean, a normal person, uh, other, anyone other than Woodrow Wilson would have taken Lodge with him to Versailles. Yeah, uh, but I mean, that's, that's not Wood, that's not Woodrow Wilson. Lodge, I mean that that that's quite true. Lodge did not like being dismissed. He had a similar issue with John Hay uh, when they were discussing the the Panama Canal uh, Treaty. Um, uh, Hay was not a fan of politicians. He didn't think that that they were really good for anything except causing dissension and 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 problems and he really tried to go around lodge and 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 push lodge out of his way that may you know there, there's always the unspoken stuff you know to your point at the very beginning john hay may or may not have had a relationship with henry cabot lodge's wife nanny and there was always some tension there and you don't know if lodge knew about it uh, or not, um, he may, you know, Lodge was off campaigning uh, during that time, uh, but they they always had kind of uh, a delicate uh, relationship, Lodge and, and Hay, but Lodge was not someone who liked being dismissed or, or uh, not informed or, or uh, pushed around. He was not someone who was going to take that lightly. And um, you know, Wilson, uh, Lodge didn't like Wilson. He thought he was an opportunist. He thought he was intellectually dishonest. Um, and uh, when Wilson walked into the Senate with the treaty, uh, he Lodge very politely said, oh, Mr. President, may I, may I, may I carry it? And Wilson said, not on your life. <laughs> they despise, what can I say? They despise each other as only two professors can. Yeah. 
Yeah, it just uh, whatever reason, and 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 Lodge, I think uh, you don't know how deep that that enmity really was. John Garrity, again, who I who I've referenced before, uh, wrote this first the first book really where he had access to Lodge's papers, but it was under the guise of Henry Cabot Lodge Lodge Jr., who I think was was very careful and and watched. Professor Garrity and and there are there are notes in the book where Garrity asks Lodge Jr. about that relationship and the, uh, the Senator Lodge says, oh, you know, my grandfather could just forget about stuff. And when he would talk about Wilson, he'd say, oh, that was really nothing to, you know, no big problem or nothing. And I just don't think so. I, I think that Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. was running for president. I think that uh, Woodrow Wilson was probably at the apex of his moral authority in American life in the 50s and the 60s. Uh, lots of progressive Democrats, like my grandmother, uh, worshipped the ground that he walked upon. Um, and I, I, I don't believe it. I, I, think, I think they were both really good haters. Um, yeah, no, Lodge really, he had a long memory. He, uh, he loved, if you were a friend of his, he would do anything for you. As with Oliver Wendell Holmes, who had stood with Lodge from the get-go after Lodge was dismissed by the Beacon Hill set, Holmes stood with him. And what ended up happening? Well, he helped Holmes get a seat on the Supreme Court. If you crossed him, forget it. Yeah. Forget it. Yeah. Well, my guest today has been Lawrence Jerdom. He's the author of The Rough Rider and The Professor. Theodore Roosevelt, Henry Cabot Lodge, and the Friendship that Changed American History, although I admit that in this podcast, we mostly have been calling it The Professor and the Rough Rider. So, Lawrence, LJ, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. It's really been a wonderful opportunity, and I so appreciate you taking the time, and, and I'm glad you enjoyed the book. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend, or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 